period from Tishri 1 to Tishri 10, um, or Rosh Hashanah, or you may call it Yom Teruah, to Yom HaKippurim, or aka Yom Kippur, is identified with the uh, coronation and enthronement of God as king, as well as with righteous judgments and enactments of vindication and restoration, depending on which side of judgment you fall on. Now, we see this nowhere so beautifully as in the scriptural readings of Rosh Hashanah, the stories of the birth and life of um, Sarah's only child in Genesis 21 and 22, and in the Haftarah reading of Baron Hannah's cries to the Lord and subsequent deliverance from shame, oppression, and childlessness. Now, both of these rich histories contain God's vindication of their honor, of Sarah's in spite of Hagar's pregnant contempt and Hannah's insight of her perennially fertile rival Peninnah in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. Um, these women and these particular children tell us the grand story of our king and how he works, uh, not through those to whom the world would like to ascribe honor, but often in direct opposition to the world's ideas about who and who is not um, blessed and worthy. <clears throat> and they aren't the only barren women in scripture. We also have Be Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mom, Anna, and Elizabeth. And these stories are featured in the readings that that begin with the uh, new civil and agricultural year. Um even though the festival months begin in the spring, months and years are tied together in the Roman calendar, but not in the Hebrew calendar. Uh, anyway, these stories mark the beginning of the new year because that is how life works. At first, you know, potential and future events are hidden away, only to take shape and grow into something larger than itself. You know, things like leaven and mustard seeds and prayers and babies and much, much more. Uh, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the ancient sociological and historical context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have like six years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural in a context in a way that even kids can understand that, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Um, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Well, this is going to be interesting because I wrote this when I had a fever <laughs> last week. I do not know what was wrong, but I was just bleh. Actually got a COVID test. Every one of I've had quite a few COVID tests, um, <laughs> but each one has come up negative and last week's did too, but oh man. Yeah, I was pretty miserable last week, but I still, you know, you have to get work done. And um, anyway, so full disclosure. So it could be either brilliant or a disaster. <laughs> or 
going to see, but either way, it'll be completely accidental if it's brilliant. So, um, as I was saying, full disclosure, if you have never heard me speak of it before, um, I'm barren. Multiple reproductive birth defects all working together in such a way that I've been pregnant many times, but I've never given birth to a living child. So this is very personal for me. Um, now, because of a tumor that I had to remove this spring, now I'm really, really barren because everything I need to make a baby is gone. But as I'm in my 50s, it was really well past time anyway. And, you know, our wonderful beloved sons, uh, whom we adopted at birth, are adults. And I'm not wanting to begin again. So there's that. You know, but being barren myself, experiencing life in religious spheres is rather like living in one of Dante's fictional levels of hell. People say insanely cruel things um, in ignorance and sometimes even on purpose. You know, I smile to myself now, however, you know, all those years ago and even after, you know, the wonderful adoption of our, our now adult sons, you know, while enduring those comments, I had a dream that my husband and I would have over 100 children, none of them biological. And that that's scary, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I I wondered how it could happen even up to about five years ago. And now I minister to kids from all over the world through books and videos and my radio show. So the world does not see as God sees. Being barren is not a measure of worth or motherhood. Uh, neither is fertility. And I know that will shock a lot of gals who were carefully indoctrinated to believe that having many children equals God's great favor. And having none means that you have hidden sin in your life. But you know the abortion? Clinics are not full because women with hidden unrepentant sin can't get pregnant. Teen pregnancy doesn't happen because fertility is only bestowed on the righteous and the ready. Pregnancy happens... Shocker, guys. Because a sperm meets an egg in a fallopian tube, and then childbirth happens because everything after that was in good working order as well. That's how God designed creation to pretty much do what it needs to do without micromanagement. Now, that isn't to say that God doesn't make miracles. Uh, if you know our story, then you know I would never say that. But more often than not, infertile women do not conceive without a great deal of medical help. And barren women, well, usually medical science hasn't advanced far enough to help out with that either. So it's lovely when God helps, but it isn't lovely when people assume that the only thing women have to offer the world is making babies and being moms. Now, we were fortunate enough to know, adopt twins who are now adults, but not everyone gets to do that for any number of reasons. Now, fortunately, women, like men, are vital to the kingdom and to the community of believers, regardless of whether or not they have birthed and or raised kids. It's one thing that people do, have kids, and not the whole beginning and end of existence. It doesn't determine blessedness, righteousness, or worth. It's not a reliable indicator of anything except a biological system functioning or malfunctioning. Now, not everything is as it appears to be when it comes to blessings and curses. Not only don't we see them consistently on display in otherwise righteous figures, we often see a lack of blessing lamented and complained about in the Psalms. 
we'll often see something that says, oh, Yahweh, your people are so blessed and the righteous never have any problems. And then, you know, a few psalms later, or sometimes even in the same psalm, we say, oh, Yahweh, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer lack? Evidently, the psalmists aren't practicing their prosperity gospel affirmations effectively enough or tithing to the right ministry. And yeah, that was sarcasm. In religious circles, women who have children, and especially many children, often take it for granted that it's some sort of automatic badge of God's favor. Yet, what percentage of fertile women were even mentioned in the Bible, you know, associated with their children by name? And how many barren women are called to our attention? Do we hear about the righteousness of David's mother? Do we even know her name despite all the boys in that house? Is she even mentioned at all? <laughs> no. Now we do, however, all know the name of the women who, woman who would be vindicated through the birth of the prophet who anointed David as king. Was it not Baron Rachel's son Joseph and not Reuben who saved his people? Now, Sarah, Rebecca, sorry, I'm still a little bit congested. So if you, if there's a pause, it means that I'm trying not to sneeze or sniff or something. Now, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, uh, Samson's mother, and I'm pretty sure that her name was withheld to protect her virtue because dang, that boy. Um, Hannah and Elizabeth, they were all barren. These were women who were remembered and who gave birth after all hope was lost, and not to normal kids, but instead to these amazing men of God, or who were at least used by God, you know, because Samson, that boy, um, only David's wife, Michael, out of all the women in scripture, was cursed with barrenness after mocking her husband, and it might actually be because he would never sleep with her again after her public shaming of him, Whereas we see that Jezebel never had need of a fertility doctor, or a Thalia for that matter, and she killed all of her kids and a lot of her grandkids, all right? All but one. There are some really great and some truly messed up women in scripture, just like with men. Of course, in those days, they didn't know about male infertility. <laughs> and so we're left to wonder about Isaac, Samson's dad, and Zechariah, who weren't mentioned as having kids with anyone else either. You just never know. Not that it matters because in those days and in modern times, the shame fell upon the childless woman. Because even today, you know, despite the availability of medical knowledge and especially in religious circles, okay, printer, that's enough. I should have turned it off before I started recording. It's going to keep doing this forever. Um, you know, the woman is still assumed to be the one with the problem. And we usually are because our systems have a way lot more that can go wrong with them. Men literally have one thing to do, <laughs> right? And as long as their little swimmies are healthy enough, it isn't like they're providing life support for another human being for nine months, which is where everything went wrong with me. But uh, in religious circles, we tend to want to find visible ways of proving how righteous we are. And fertility is just an easy way of doing that, or, or not in my case. I have seen this guy on Facebook, okay? He brags that his blog gets a million hits a month, and yet I never see him getting any likes. But are a million hits important? 
What if they're all pings from spammers? I know a lot of mine are on my blog, which is why I removed the app that tracks those things. Um, I got a comment this morning <laughs> that was in Russian with suspicious looking links. And I am dead on sure they weren't telling me how much they liked my blog. Um, is a wealth of whatever commodity really a reliable sign of God's favor when so many truly evil people are, you know, swimming in cash? Um, stuff, good looks, athletic ability, and children? The psalmists tell us that the appearance of blessings isn't always about God's favor. Uh, so do the, so does Proverbs for that matter. Um, after all, you know, the sun and rain are given to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We definitely need to stop using God and exploiting our having stuff in order to look favored. And believe me, I have done it. But now it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. If you have kids and you are poor, but I am rich and barren. Yeah, I'm not rich. <laughs> I am barren. Now, who gets to claim God's favor? Of course, I am rich compared to people in other countries. All right. Yeah, totally. Um, is there like a hierarchy of stuff? Is that even our job or is it presumptuous and, and self-serving? Um, Yeshua was clear in the exhortation never to exalt ourselves or by extension to humble others because that's why we do that, right? You know, added to that, what was a blessing in an ancient agricultural society filled with clan warfare isn't nearly as much of a blessing when you need to have a big enough car and car seats and just everything you need to legally raise kids in today's world. Works out if you got a TV show, but not so much if you're a regular person. And in the end, I imagine, you know, really the best course of action is to have your kids to be happy with how many you have and not to look down on anyone else. All right. For having more, or having less. You know, you aren't all that and a bag of chips and neither am I. And unless you're a Mormon, um, you won't be graded at the end for how many children you gave birth to. All right. And if you're, if you live in Idaho or Utah, you're possibly chuckling right now. But if you're a Mormon woman from Utah or Idaho and you are barren, you are not laughing at all because it's a cause for terrible, terrible stress. Now, to drive the point home that more is not always desirable and that worldly standards of honor are relative and sometimes deceptive, take a look at the end of the scripture reading in the portions about the birth of Isaac. Um, in Genesis 22, we see the fecundity. I just wanted to use that fancy word that means a whole lot of babies were birthed by, you know, his women, um, of Abraham's brother Nahor. So the fecundity of Abraham's brother Nahor. I just want to use that word because I've never said it before. Um, you know, in league with his wife and concubine. Okay. Cause actually he, like I said before, he had one thing to do. Um, Together, uh, they had 12 sons, only one being notable, but not for the usual reasons that a son is wanted to be counted as notable. One of the sons became the father of the matriarch, Rebecca. From Abraham sprung many great nations from relatively few, and from his brother Nahor came a granddaughter who would become Israel's, uh, Jacob's mother. 
and I'm confident that, given a choice, he and his wife would rather have given birth to a son who would be noted for more than siring a girl. You know, times being what they were, and, and, and Laban. Yeah, yeah, they, Laban was one of their, yeah, progeny. Uh, you know, that boy would be shameful in any culture for practicing betrayal against a member of his own clan. Is this to say that barren women are somehow superior to fertile? No, <laughs> that'd be silly. But I am saying that the actions of our king tell us we cannot judge the value of a woman by whether or not she bears children young or even at all. Um, in fact, Yahweh is the author and creator of the honor reversal. Um, if you've read my curriculum book, uh, Honor and Shame of the Bible, you know, you, you know about honor reversals and how cool they are. Now, Yahweh often favors the younger son over the firstborn. He sometimes chooses the barren woman over the fertile. He just like that. He doesn't see what we see. He doesn't seem to value what we value and external appearances don't dazzle him or he would have chosen David's older brother, Eliab. He was evidently quite impressive. So much so that even the prophet Samuel, who was no pushover, was chomping at the bit, wanting to anoint the boy. But instead, Yahweh chose the overlooked child who wasn't deemed important enough to come to the feast. This story isn't unique. God judges by different standards. We're, on the other hand, easily misled by material blessings, and so we often miss the heart of the matter. So, we have Leah... And we have Rachel, who was blessed. Both of them were, just differently. And both could legitimately have counted themselves cursed. Which is worse, to be unloved or to be childless? All depends on which one of those applies to you. To Leah, all the children in the world meant less than the fact that she was unloved. To Rachel... All of Jacob's love was empty because of the shame she had over being childless and therefore seen in ancient Near Eastern culture as being less than a wife and less than a woman. Leah had all the external honor as a matriarch, but no regard from her husband, who probably wasn't sharing her tent very often, and that would have been very shameful. Okay, Rachel had no honor, but she had her husband's devotion. I doubt anyone would rush to trade places with either one of them. And, of course, this is just a rehashing of the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and a preview of Hannah, Elkanah, and Peninnah. You know, this week's Torah and Haftarah readings. The picture painted through these carefully chosen scripture readings is larger than simply childbearing. It's about the fruit that a woman bears and the vindication that comes as a result of it. We will all be judged and will be rewarded according to what we produce by the king who has written all of our actions in his book of remembrance, which the Jewish people believe is opened every year on Rosh Hashanah slash Yom Teruah. That fruit can be generated in youth for certain, but age is no barrier. Sometimes the best fruit becomes from a presumably barren and shameful tree. Now, a fertile woman might bear ten wretched children just as poor Haman's wife. Actually, you know, I don't know that they were terrible children, but they didn't come to a good end. And, and a noble woman may produce only one 
or none, as in the case of the prophetess Anna, who was day by day in the temple. And we can find her story in Luke 2, you know, verses 36 through 38. Who would call Anna barren or faithless? Or actually, you could call her, who would call her faithless? You could call her barren. Uh, yeah, I'm going to edit the script there, right there. Uh, now, truth is, yeah, remember I told you I had a fever. Now, truth is we want to look blessed, but God chooses us to be a blessing instead. And don't get me wrong. Bearing your husband a lot of children, well, you know, sons and not daughters, anyway, was how you primarily blessed your husband in those days because they provided free labor as well as a small military force when raiders would come through your territory. Things being what they were, you were making your husband look like quite the stud. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, I, I have a fever. I'm going to keep reminding you. But sometimes Yahweh's goal was to bless the world instead. And so Sarah had one child and Rebecca had two, having only one pregnancy. But only one of those was chosen. All right. Rachel had two, but died while giving birth to the second. We have no indication that Samson had any siblings. No, she was probably enough. Um, Hannah went on to have sons and daughters after Samuel. Anna had no children, and Elizabeth, I imagine, had only John. There is no one story here about women and what they do and what they contribute to the meta-narrative, which is the overarching story of salvation. And many stories of women aren't about their status as mothers as all. Status as mothers at all. Not Huldah, not Abigail, not Deborah, not Yael. It's the desire of our flesh to look at whatever we have, you know, whether it be a lot of kids, money, worldly success, popularity, um, etc., as a sign of God's favor or lack thereof. But the truest sign of God's favor is to be found in the good fruit he allows and inspires and alters us to produce, starting on the inside. Think about the fruit of the Spirit, um, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, none of it's genuine if it's only external even though it will manifest in what we do externally, if it is genuine. But fruit is about choices, not about things we have no choice about. And without him, there is no acceptable fruit. Sarah was probably barren for over 70 years. Rebecca for 40, and so on and so on. I'm sure they tried. But unlike the other women around them, they could not just place their faith in their flesh to produce that fruit. You know, make no mistake, finding out that we can't place our faith in the flesh is a positive thing that few people in this life truly realize or learn to appreciate. We've been called to the same kind of life. We can't just go through the emotions in our flesh and uh, call it good. You know, no matter how amazing the result looks from the outside. To produce something excellent, we, we must see ourselves as barren trees in need of that divine intervention. 
and everyone is barren in different ways when we come into this walk. <laughs> 20 years into it, too. <laughs> Speaking from experience. Um, Yeshua doesn't call us to follow him because we're, like, producing what the kingdom needs, and he's, like, you know, some sort of college recruiter <laughs> looking at us for our skills. Believe me, we have no skills that are worth recruiting. Uh, not, not any that are of any use to him anyway, because, you know, the kingdom is so countercultural that sometimes what looks like a blessing is a curse. And what looks like a curse is a blessing. And frankly, you know, we're coming up on the half here. We can be so caught up in what we think, you know, we have to offer that we're just uselessly insufferable. Anyway, I'll be back in a few minutes. Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context. It's Rosh Hashanah season, and so we're talking about the traditional readings, um, which are all about barren women, which is kind of an odd thing, but when you look at it as the beginning of the year, it's the beginning, you know, it's new potentials, new possibilities, it's a time of... Um, in Jewish thought, it's a time of opening the books of remembrance and judging people and determining destinies and all that. So they, um, they do readings, uh, revolving around Sarah and Hannah. And so we've been talking about that. We've been talking about, you know, exactly what is the worth of a woman and is it entirely, uh, determined by having a bunch of kids? And scripture says no, even though in a lot of, church settings and different religious settings, they say yes, or at least, you know, they, yeah, no, they say yes. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, these women, um, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, um, Samson's mom, especially Samson's mom, uh, Hannah and Anna and Elizabeth, they had to live by faith and not by flesh, you know, like Samson. Uh, and they showed us the way Samson's mom is like, you know, you don't want to be reincarnated as Samson's mom because that'd be like really bad. No, I don't believe in reincarnation. It's a joke. Anyway, so they, these women had to wait on God's timing and pruning to produce, you know, not ordinary fruit, but exceptional fruit. And it's the model of every, for every one of us, male and female, to produce something that is mature and good. You know, it, it takes time and generally a lot of anguish. And like Samson's mom, a lifetime of it. I'm really picking on Samson. He deserves it. His poor mom. Um, it won't happen. You know, good fruit doesn't happen just because we want it to or when we want it to. You know, impatient flesh is how you get an Ishmael. Or the forgotten children of Peninnah, not an Isaac or a Samuel. But I do have a question that's very important to ask. Uh, what was the value of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and Elizabeth while they were, quote unquote, ladies in waiting, you know, waiting to be moms? Um, were they worthless? 
Were they without meaning or identification? How are single and childless women treated in religious circles? How are single men treated in religious circles? You know, really, we know much more about Sarah before she became a mother. 90 years went by and she was the matriarch of a nomadic people group for decades before she gave birth to Isaac. She likely walked most of the way from her to Canaan, as did all of them, traveling at the speed of the slowest of the livestock who needed to forage as they went. She ran the tent of Abraham and managed her servants, probably cared for the sick and filled more than her fair share of water jugs or skins over the years. She was a very important person in the clan and would have, you know, uh, a great many responsibilities. Even with the shame of childlessness hanging over her head and even the pregnant slave girls looking at her as though there was something inherently wrong with her, that she must be cursed because that's the way they looked at it in the ancient world. They didn't know, they didn't have any medical knowledge. You know, read Job if you want to look into what people assumed about anyone who was viewed as afflicted or cursed. They felt that whatever, that you got whatever you had coming to you. That's what, that's what Job's friends said, right? But Sarah was a heroine long before she had her miracle baby. She followed her husband's claiming to hear God uh, wherever he went and far from the safety of home and clan into enemy territory. When her husband asked her to lie, even though it put her in grave danger, she went along with it not once but twice. She maintained her virtue and forcibly taken into not one but two harems. Sarah was no wimp. Sarah was beautiful, yes. But it would have taken a lot more than beauty to keep Abraham loyal to her in a day and age where a man without heirs was a man cursed and in danger in his old age. No man of those times would simply be swayed by beauty. And even though Abraham repeatedly put Sarah at risk to save his own skin, and I mean, you know, he was still an ancient Near Eastern kind of guy in many ways, you know, she must have been really something. When Sarah advised Abraham on family policy, even Yahweh took her side. Sarah's womb might have been barren, but Sarah herself certainly was fruitful in every way that mattered. Now, Proverbs 31, and I know you women are going, oh, no, no, Proverbs 31. Um, it gives us interesting insight into the value and measure of a woman of valor. It's interesting what is and is not mentioned. <laughs> An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's still yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. 
Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her. In the Gates As Elizabeth Bennett said of the woman described by the arrogant Carolyn Bingley in Pride and Prejudice, I never saw such a woman. She would surely be a fearsome thing to behold. You know, we we look at this list describing the activities of an upper-class Jewish matriarch, and we're suitably astounded at her level of accomplishment. She is busy, busy, busy on behalf of her household, her husband, and the community. Seemingly, no one escapes her notice, and no one is beneath being worthy of her efforts. Interestingly, her hands are mentioned a lot. But the one thing that is never said about her is that she's given birth to a whole passel of children. That her children rise up and call her blessed comes across as more of an afterthought at the end of a laundry list of activities. Nothing is even said as to whether she came by these children through childbirth, marriage, or adoption. They're merely called hers, and I think we can draw a great deal of wisdom from this portrait. She is a wife, yes. She is a mother, yes. But that is such a small part of who she is to so many. The Proverbs 31 woman is trustworthy. She's kind, a benefit to herself and to others. She adds to people's lives. And is not a drain as we would imagine from a spoiled, wealthy stereotype. She's industrious, not leaving the work to others while she lives in pampered luxury. She does the food shopping for her household and makes sure that everyone from the greatest to the least has enough to eat. No one escapes her notice or her provision. She has enough business acumen to know what considerations go into buying a field and then she does it. She also has enough agricultural knowledge to plant a vineyard. No small feat. She hasn't grown too weak or dainty from living the good life. Her arms are strong enough to handle whatever task requires her attention. She knows how to turn a profit from the work of her hands. She's an excellent planner, and so her household doesn't have to worry about running low on oil or other necessities. She makes what she can and buys what she has to. She's generous to the poor and doesn't hide from the needy. No one in her household is cold or shoeless in the winter. Her household doesn't go without because she is standing in the gap making sure that needs are met. She weaves and she sells the garments. She's strong, dignified, wise, and kind. She's a blessing to everyone around her. Everyone praises her not for her beauty or for producing sons, but because of who she is and what she does. And what she does, she does because she loves Yahweh. She is to be praised because of who she is, and she is to receive the credit and the profit from her labors. That's, you know, my translation of um, 
Proverbs 31. Did you ever notice that the Proverb 31 woman's looks are never described? In fact, she laughs at getting older. No mention of giving birth or producing sons, either. The Hebrew Bible is ordered in one of two ways. Um, with for Jewish Bibles, with Ruth coming either after Song of Songs or after Proverbs. In the tradition, in the Christian tradition, Ruth comes after Judges and before Samuel as a more chronological book. But in the Hebrew tradition, Ruth is instead associated with wisdom literature. I do prefer the placement of Ruth right after Proverbs 31. If Proverbs 31 is the unrealistic ideal, you know, and it is if we look at it as a list of things every wife has to do in order to be excellent. I don't even have the money to buy a field, nor the expertise to make my own linen. Ruth perhaps became that Proverbs 31 woman, being that she married rich Boaz, but her excellence was recognized and honored long before. Ruth, as far as we know, had one child. Obed, who famously sired Jesse, the father of King David, but when we look at Ruth, we're not thinking about David. Ruth stands on her own. Ruth was childless when her husband died, presumably young, and when she risked life and limb to follow her mother-in-law Naomi back to the land of Israel, she was giving up her people, her ways, and everything in order to care for a woman who could offer her nothing in return. Ruth certainly owed Naomi nothing. Naomi was a vulnerable widow in a foreign land, and she was returning home to no prospects. We know from later in the book that their land had been sold and needed to be redeemed, so there was no hope of going back and homesteading. They would be squatters instead on someone else's land, living off the charity and gleanings of others. So, in terms of quality of life, Ruth was walking into the opposite situation of the Proverbs 31 woman. Not only wasn't she wealthy, not only didn't she have maid servants, not only wasn't she dressed in scarlet and purple— not only could she not afford to laugh at the future, she didn't even have a husband or a child. But where it counted, she was that Proverbs 31 woman, at least what that woman would look like if she wasn't so prosperous. Now her household was Naomi. And in caring for Naomi, she did whatever was necessary. She worked her butt off. Not making linen garments and sashes, but doing the back-breaking work of gleaning, wearing long robes in the hot sun from morning till night. And she did that work through the barley and wheat harvesting seasons. Yes, Boaz made it easier for her, but it was never easy. And when she left her country and her kin, she had no such delusions that she wouldn't be slaving away for life, just barely living above starvation level. Who should we honor more, Ruth or the Proverbs 31 woman, or maybe Sarah? Really wrong question. The important thing about these and countless women, some written about, but the overwhelming majority never written about anywhere and long since forgotten, is that they did what they could with what they had, and they did those things with valor. Husband or not. Children or not. Money or not. A woman is truly blessed when she's a blessing and not when she has the means to buy fields and plant vineyards and hire servants. 
So I look at all these women and despite what was going on in their lives and despite what judgment they faced because of their circumstances, they were all amazing. If you were to rewrite Proverbs 31 about your own life, what would it look like? Years ago, I wrote this and maybe it will change the way you look at yourself and the women around you or look at your wife or mom or sister. But first, I'm going to share with you how I used to read it back when I loathed this gal with a passion. She gets up bright and chipper every morning and makes breakfast for everyone. Her children rise up without complaint and thank her for the wake-up call, and they're perfectly behaved and all straight-A students. She dresses them in the finest fashions, and she never has a hair out of place. She's beautiful with no unwanted fat, and she never ages. She gets pregnant when she wants to, without problems or miscarriages, and she is the perfect lover for her husband because she never tires. She provides her family with tasty gourmet dishes. She has her own home-based business, despite homeschooling her perfect brood. Her husband loves to show her off because she is just so smoking hot. She's smart and witty and always knows the right thing to say and do. Her children never fight. They love and respect her too much for that. She tirelessly does charity work because her family is so well-functioning they hardly need her at all. Her children become doctors and lawyers. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Am I alone? Have you read it this way, too? Uh, now, one day, all right, as I was reading through the scriptures again and grumbling at my literary adversary, God impressed upon me that she was never called beautiful. And almost nothing of what I wrote could actually be found in Proverbs 31. I had performed a shamelessly ruthless bit of eisegesis. Eisegesis, not eisegesis. Goodness sakes. Um, I was reading an agenda into the text. So I revisited Proverbs 31 and rewrote it for the more modern woman paying attention to what's actually there. Her husband trusts her. She is not a trophy or arm candy. She is an asset to his life and greatly valued. She treats him well and cares for him. She purchases what is needed and from her purchases provides for the entire family. She makes sure they're fed and takes care of their employees as well, not mistreating them. She is recognized as smart enough to make independent financial decisions for the family and does not squander the benefits of it. She makes sure her family is clothed and clean. She ensures that they have warm clothes for the winter months, and she sees to it that her house repairs and bills are not neglected so that the family will not suffer in the cold. She never embarrasses her husband, nor does she drive him to poverty with frivolous spending, leaving him free to do the things he needs to do. She uses her skills for those who have need of them, whether they need food to be made or to be clothed, their house clean during times of illness, a shoulder to cry on, or lips to offer prayers. She is such a blessing to people that they don't notice how she looks. They notice who she is. She studies the word of God and it seasons her speech. She doesn't neglect to keep track of her household, the finances, and the needs of her family and others. 
She doesn't let them lack so that she can be lazy all the time. They have clean clothes, food to eat, and shelter. Her husband and children call her blessed, and they appreciate her. Adding this, even though the kids might say otherwise when they get angry. Loveliness can sway a man's heart into an unsuitable match. Prettiness can lead to vanity, and youth withers. Find a woman who fears God. Don't hold her back or deny her credit for what she accomplishes. Let people judge her by who she is and what she does. So, does that sound a little more reasonable? Does that sound like you? So are you married or are you single? Do you have a dozen kids or one or none? Did you adopt? Are you a foster parent? Are you the breadwinner or the stay-at-home parent? Are you starting out or are you retired? Are you an empty nester or are you raising your grandkids or are you a foster parent? Really, I could have written a hundred different variations on this and the activities might be different, but the character would look the same in every single one. Because an excellent woman is an excellent woman. Some excellent women are married and others are single. Some excellent women are barren and others are fertile. Some excellent women have PhDs and some have GEDs and some are illiterate. Some excellent women are in wheelchairs or are bedridden and others care for those who are bedridden. Some excellent women do charity work. Others support charity work and some receive charity. One thing for sure is that all excellent women share character traits with the Proverbs 31 woman, even if their activities end up having little in common. <sighs> I'll tell you, we women, we're our own worst enemies a lot of the time. We, we compete over nonsense. We judge over nothing. We create cliques and judge other women based on choices as though they were moral issues. We judge over family size, schooling, breastfeeding, vaccinations, scheduling, and co-sleeping, and we're really just peeing on our own territory and dismissing anyone who does things differently as though we're the gold standard of parenting. You want to know why women feel defeated? <laughs> In judging one another, we lay the heaviest judgment on ourselves. Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, told us that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and it's true. When one woman tears down another woman over choices that simply represent different parenting styles and different realities of life, when women form yay-me groups exalting this or that choice and condemning anyone who feels differently, when we lose our compassion in a subconscious effort to exalt our own choices because we're really terrified that we're doing it wrong and everyone who's different terrifies us, we end up dissatisfied and discouraged. We end up that way because we are divided. Think about it. Think about how many women would kill to have our decisions to make and 
how we fight and posture and shred one another, as though there's only one true way to do everything our way. I don't see the Proverbs 31 being mentioned as being anything except a blessing and supportive of others, as being a resource. You know, back in July, a woman just tore me to pieces because I, of all things, I wasn't anti-vaccination enough for her. I'm only against those vaccinations that are actually cultured off of aborted fetal tissue. That's where I personally draw the line. And still, I, I don't dictate terms to anyone. I got accused of being genocidal, supporting evil, and not being fit to teach children. Not like I'd discuss things like that with them, but I see a lot of that stuff. A Proverbs 31 mindset is one where we are blessings and not dictators. Where we can look at the same set of circumstances and data and come to different decisions without being immoral monsters. Where we can love and support one another and be, oh, I don't know, humble. And then we won't need to exalt ourselves and our opinions anymore because we won't need that sort of artificial validation. Ladies, and I know how it happens, you know, when you're put down and when you're told that you're less and maybe, you know, you weren't the son and, and maybe you weren't this, maybe you were told you couldn't do things because you were a girl. The worst thing we can do is carry that forward and be even more a burden on women than they are already carrying. None of us are all that in a bag of chips. We need to love one another and we need to be a blessing and we need to stop exalting ourselves. See you next week. Mm -hmm.